Hello and welcome to the Nirvana Principles show. Uh, you're tuned in to myself, Dr. Hassan Malik. I'm a psychiatric registrar. I work in London. And thank you to Melodic Distraction Radio to give me an hour every month to talk to you about concepts in psychology and psychiatry and how mental health affects our lives and the world we live in. We are going to be talking about trauma today. It's a difficult topic. Um, and if you feel that this is something this is not right for you to listen right now, please feel free to check out our other episodes or, you know, wh wh whatever floats your boat. Even during, during the show, if you feel something is getting a bit heavy, take a step back and um, you can always come back to this later or, like I said, um, find other ways to spend your time. So I've started work these days in a community mental health team. And while I was sitting at my desk, I, I noticed that there was this one lady and she was like a street therapist. She'd just meet a stranger or colleague and she'd be like, hey, I, I, she'd just do like some small, like two minutes of therapy. Like, you know, if someone's just moaning and saying, oh man, I can't do this. And, and she hears it. She's like, why are you saying that? You, you can do it. Look at you, you know, you're, you're like a doctor or, or, you're, or you're a professional. And, and you know, it's just somehow fixes that small cognitive distortion somewhere or if she'll see someone who looks a bit anxious no relation no patient of hers she'll be like hmm let's do like a grounding exercise together so I like, okay i think like, this person obviously enjoys help helping other people through their problems and when i talk to her turns out she is a therapist as i suspected and her name is josie geddes am i pronouncing it correctly or jeddes yeah, Geddes. Okay, so Josie, just uh, hello to you and uh, you want to say hello to our listeners today? Hi, uh, thank you very much for inviting me and, and hello to everybody. I hope today's uh, discussion will be of use. Okay, um, I just wanted to know a little bit about you. I mean, I, I told you how I see you in the office, but how would some someone else see you how would your patients see you what, what is your role how do you spend your time how are you related to mental health so i've been working in the community mental health team for a year i actually joined uh, a year ago and my current role is a complex emotional needs clinician and complex emotional needs is the new term for kind of personality disorder. I think it's slightly less offensive than saying that your personality is disordered. Um, so we're recognizing more broadly it's complex emotional needs. So um, the role involves assessing and, and offering where appropriate uh, treatment to patients with a diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder, uh, also known as borderline personality disorder, uh, or people that would identify, so they don't necessarily have to have the diagnosis, but we recognize that, that that could describe their difficulty and they identify with that. Yeah, I mean, you've you've been in, in the business for a bit. Uh, I feel like you've, uh, we were talking off air and you've kind of found that healing trauma or helping those who have been had, we call it different things, and, and we'll discuss in our show what we exactly mean by that. But... Um, what was your journey like? Were you always like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna be a therapist? That's that's me, baby. Uh, no, absolutely not. I initially uh, wanted to be a lawyer, 
um, I think me and my mum, there were programmes that we'd watched together and that was also what my mum wanted me to be. And I think when you're small, you don't have a concept of there being much other than uh, lawyers or doctors in the world. <laughs> Engineers as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, the big three, so to say, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then actually, as I kind of progressed, um, I ended up, I didn't do particularly well when I went to secondary school mm-hmm. uh, and that I'd like to say that it was more about the school than me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Sorry, I told myself. Yes. <laughs> then um, things became increasingly difficult in my teenage years, and I didn't manage to complete A levels. I was uh, taken out, kicked out of my college. So, um, yeah, the initial plan of these kind of really high end uh, careers that didn't work out for me, mm-hmm. and I ended up thinking actually I think I want to be a probation officer. Um, probably in response to my dad spending quite a lot of time in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, actually, you're not ready to be a probation officer. I don't usually have much life experience. You're quite young. Go and do a bit of volunteering, uh, work with people with complex difficulties that might come into the prison system and apply again next year. And I ended up volunteering in a local drug and alcohol service and stayed there for 15 years. That was uh, that's a yeah. long volunteer stint. Did you get a certificate? <laughs> you get a certificate at the end, at least. Uh... Well, I actually then became an employee. Mm. So I did a year of volunteering, um, and then worked on a crack cocaine day program, um, and then eventually on a non-abstinent-based uh, treatment program, a day program for people in South London. What, what do you mean? Uh, uh, sorry, what do you mean by non-abstinent? So non-abstinent means people that are still in active addiction. So still using substances Mm. um, as a way to cope. And kind of pre-going into detox and rehab. Um, So kind of having to engage in a program to to see how they tolerate it. Mm -hmm. And then often being referred on to uh, detox programs and then residential rehabs, which were abstinence-based. So I think the acceptance of people's life choices was something you were doing early on in your career? Yeah, very much. And working with people who use crack and heroin and alcohol problematically, it's complex trauma. It's people that have had incredibly difficult lives. Um, and unfortunately, due to the you know, life choices, add to the trauma on a regular basis. Life continues to be incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it was hard to see. Yeah. Um, so you, from there, from substance misuse, you you now have pretty much all the letters of the alphabet that therapists can have. You you do MBT therapy, EMDR, CBT, uh, your complex emotional needs clinician, <laughs> like an all-rounded therapist. And, and we'll talk a little bit on in the last segment of our show about what exactly those those terms mean, what they are. So what was your journey from there, uh, from deciding to now get like an official, uh, what do you have to do? Sorry, do, do you have to study for it? Do you have to work yes. for it? So I kind of felt like the interventions I was able to offer were, were, were quite limited mm. um, and felt that, you know, within the remit of a drug and alcohol service, I wasn't quite doing what I wanted, which was helping people to make effective and lifelong changes. And then wanted to study. So I did counselling, first of all. I went and did some counselling courses um, and then ended up doing a degree in psychodynamic counselling, short-term psychodynamic counselling and CBT 
it's not a course that runs anymore. I think they recognize the error in their ways quite <laughs> Were you the How one where they decided know? this? Were you the one where they were like, okay, this is not going to work. We, we we need to like separate psychodynamic I, from I think they cognitive. ran it twice after ours and was like, just, how can you ask someone to hold these two concepts? Yeah. Um, yeah. Two placements, two supervisions, two studies. Wow. It was, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Because psychodynamic was my thing, actually. Mm -hmm. That uh, was the well, thing that made sense to me. Uh, so psychodynamic is like the long-term one, the one where it's more about the subtext or the subconscious aspects, while CBT is more like behavior therapy, where like, okay, you're doing X, and we need yes. to change that. But you're doing X because of Y? or you... So I think somebody has explained it quite nicely to me um, and captured it nicely. In psychodynamic we want to understand how the fire started. In CBT, we want to put the fire out. Oh, that's very cool. Uh, <laughs> without the firemen costumes, unfortunately. I uh, shouldn't say costume, <laughs> should call it uniform. It's not a costume. Um, okay. <laughs> so, okay, so so, uh, so then which one did you choose first? You went for CBT? Yeah, I mean, it, interestingly, like I said, that the kind of the passion for me was psychodynamic. It made sense to me that we're looking at these kind of relationship patterns. We're looking at the relationship we had with our early caregivers mm. and the significant impact that that has on how we begin to understand ourselves and relate to other people. That's still something that I operate from. Um, but actually, once I had completed my degree, psychodynamic was not where the work was. Um, nor was it where the money was. Um, CBT was the way to go. Um, uh, David Clark, who is the kind of founder of IAPT, which is increasing access to psychological therapies, and it was a nationwide program that's been rolled out and continues to be available uh, to everybody in this country, and they were kind of um, bankrolling CBT therapists. Um, and so I was able to do a postgrad in high-intensity CBT and didn't have to pay anything for it and was paid to study for years. Woo, like, that's the dream. It's like, <laughs> like a college student with cash on their hands. Um, yeah. Why would you say no? <laughs> yeah, that sounds sounds like a sweet deal. <laughs> all right. So, so you did all of these things. And now what we're just um, going to talk about today um, is going to be a bit more about specifically on the concepts of trauma, mm -hmm. the faces of trauma as well. I like to call it, you know, terminologies like post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, um, as well as complex trauma. So I'm looking forward to learn a bit today. Um, and I feel we also wanted to talk a little bit about treatment mm -hmm. and also about having conversations about trauma as well both even for let's say for myself even being a mental health professional it's it's sometimes difficult to understand uh how to talk about it and how to understand people's narratives in a i would say respectful way uh or a, a, in a dignified way maybe mm. so um so i'm hoping we could touch on those themes as well yeah absolutely we'll be back and we'll talk about trauma with josie geddes
Josie Geddes, you're listening to Nirvana Principal Show. I'm here with Dr. Hassan Malik, and today we're having a conversation about trauma. What I know about trauma, at least definition-wise, is that it's an ad, it's adversity in a phys, could be for a physical or a mental way, mm. which which happens. My concept has always been that it's that something that happens in childhood. Can you tell me what your understanding is of trauma? I kind of capture trauma as something that should never happen, something that has happened to somebody that should never have happened. And it can be at the hands of another human being. It, it often is. Um, and our struggle to make sense of what happened. So we can see with complex trauma that this will have been an accumulation of so more than one incident of, of trauma through our formative years, through our, our childhood, having a significant impact on what we're learning about ourselves, what we're learning about other people, and what we learn about being in this world. And then we can also have incidents that happen, happen later on in life. We might have had a fairly okay experience growing up, um, and then the bad thing happens when we're a bit older. And it's just experienced as incredibly destabilizing, and it's feels impossible to be able to think about anything other than the awful thing or things that have happened that change the person from that moment forward. And is the person self-aware that this is, I mean, we don't have to label it trauma, but are they aware that this is an incident which happened, which has changed my life or which affects me to this very day? It's an interesting question. And I guess it's, it's, relative it can also be really difficult when somebody might not have had their experience validated that actually maybe I had some role within that maybe there was something that I had done that had invited or initiated that thing to have happened if I hadn't done that thing said that thing worn that thing behaved in that way gone to that place uh, interacted with that person none of that would have happened um, so I imagine that people have an understanding that there's life before the incident and there's life after the incident. Although if the incidents were occurring when we were very young, we have a little concept of life before the incident. Life has always been uh, incredibly difficult. Okay, I mean, just for just for someone uh, listening, if you've just tuned in, we will be talking about some difficult things. Uh, I think we will be talking about trauma, whether that's sexual, whether that's an accident you've been in, or you know something you've seen, we might reference it. Uh, so again, if this is something which is difficult for you to hear, then we would suggest maybe catching another show for now. Um, mm. So for right now, we want to understand a little bit about the effects. Is it is it solely mental or cognitive, or does it or is it something which is there? throughout the body does it have any physical manifestation or is it just solely what should i say psychological maybe for, for lack of a better word 
No, what we see is that it has an impact on the whole being, the whole person. So if we imagine that at the point of the incident, the normal processing function of the brain has been interrupted because this awful thing is, is happening. And because we can't physically escape from that, our brain escapes by shutting off its normal functions that would take in the information and process the information of what's happening. Um, and so that process stops and we're left with the memory fragmented. And there's a, a great book called The Body Keeps the Score, which kind of talks a little bit more about um, the impact that this has on the body, that actually the body holds on to the trauma memory and it can manifest in very many different ways. We have ideas that things like fibromyalgia are actually uh, trauma. It's the body chronic pain, um, you know, kind of maybe things that people experience within their body that can't be medically explained. It's probably trauma. Your body is really holding on to the shock of the, the thing or things that have happened to you. Um, people feeling in their threat system all the time, hypervigilant um, for not being safe and the impact that that has on your mind, your energy, your ability to engage day to day, um, focus, learn, uh, interact. It affects every single part of a person's being. Yeah, I was reading some recently, they've started doing some more um... By day, I mean research. I always refer to them as day, but but uh, but scientists have started doing a bit more research on the actual imaging, and uh, like Josie was saying, with with memory. So we do know that specific. So most of our memory, there are two main regions I would say, which are one is called the hippocampus, mm -hmm. and where memories are stored. But it is closely linked to an area which deals with emotion. Um, broadly, we call that the limbic system. Am I correct in saying that? So, so the emotions you feel or associated with the memory kind of they're, I would say they complement each other or they're part of the same circuit, mm -hmm. as we like to say. Um, and that also leads to a response, you know, for example, if you're, uh, I think the classic example is you're walking down a dark road and suddenly a, uh, what should I say, a rabbit dog starts barking at you mm -hmm. uh, which actually has happened to me so um so I'm, I'm not sure but i like my immediate reaction was to like scream i like to think of it as a very uh, macho scream but i i don't think uh i don't think it was but um but it wasn't i didn't even think i just yelled as soon as i saw like a thread mm -hmm. this like snorting thing coming coming out of the shadows at me i didn't know what it was i didn't know it was a dog uh, I, but um imagination ran wild and for a second, I had like a second to assess the situation. So I was like, okay, do I run? Do I fight it? Or do mm -hmm. I stay where I am? Mm -hmm. uh, most of my friends with dogs, they, they had told me that, okay, buddy, if it's coming for you, don't run. It, the dog will chase you. So, so I froze. So I stayed there and, you know, the doggy apparently was probably more scared of me than I was of it. <laughs> um, so, um, but yes, but, but that immediately, the, the body was ready for... Mm -hmm something cataclysmic to happen there's more blood flow to to muscles there's you know every everything that's not needed to fight or flight slows mm -hmm. down uh, a lot of some of it is hormonal as well mm -hmm. um for for the biology students out there it's like the hpa axis we call it the hypothalamic pituitary and adrenal so adrenals the glands on top of your kidneys is where adrenaline comes from so you've 
I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of like, or we are talking about trauma as something negative, but there's also some, the response to it isn't always dysfunctional. If, you know, if you're about, if you're playing sports, for example, and there's a clutch shot you have to make, um, that burst of adrenaline gives you that energy, gives gives you gives you what you need in that moment to survive. Mm. So how, how does this become th- dysfunctional then, um, Josie? So you mentioned some good points, which is about that, that kind of fight, flight or freeze response. In fact, I know there's seven stages, there's seven Fs of that um, leading up to faint. And that decision is made within less than a second. You've, you've kind of assessed the situation. And and often what we see with people experiencing complex trauma or PTSD is lots of shame and regret about the decision that they made, that I should have done something differently. Um, uh, And that compounds the incident. Gosh, not only did the thing happen, the way that I responded, that wasn't acceptable. Should have done better than that. That shouldn't, I should have been able to be more effective. I should have fought the dog or I, I should have, you know, I should have responded in a different way. That's important. And the other thing, and so what that then does is it develops a new belief about the person. I suddenly have learned about myself that I am weak, I am vulnerable, I am disgusting, whatever other um, very painful cognition I then begin to believe about myself. So my world and my self image changes because of these things that have happened to me. Um, and then we think about the way that people around us respond. Often what we have learned is it's not just about the incident. In fact, it's much more compounded by the way that the people around us respond. The bad thing happens, and I, so if we think about the anxiety equation, which is increased threat, limited ability to cope, and uh, less of a limited belief that I'm going to be rescued by someone, that equals anxiety. That's the equation, you know, all bets are off. It's it's a bad situation. But if the bad thing happens and I didn't cope, but actually the people around me really rally around lots of support and love and care and encouragement and kindness, well, that makes a big difference. So the bad thing happens, I didn't cope, nobody responded, or actually people responded and made it worse, Mm-hmm. Well, we're seeing the uh, recipe for for trauma and PTSD. I'm. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of using a couple of specific disorders as as examples in in our next segment on how exactly that the faces of it. Um, but uh, we have a few minutes in 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 this segment. I wanted to ask that. How how do we? Well, two things. One one was the initial question is that how do we talk to someone about their trauma or uh, if someone is telling us their trauma, how do we respond? Um, and I guess a second, I don't know if it's an appropriate question, but but it's just more like, do you have to talk about trauma? You know, do you have to share your, your experiences? One of the things that I do want to kind of mention, another really key part of what develops PTSD is so like you were talking about this, the kind of hippocampus, and there's something called adaptive information processing. When that process is happening, I'm absorbing the information in a situation and I'm processing the, the information in a helpful and adaptive way. When I'm in a really threatening situation and my brain is not functioning and the right side and the left side are not communicating together, 
then that process has been interrupted. And what we do in trauma treatment is encourage the left and the right side of the brain to start to communicate again, because each part holds very important information that the other part needs. So one part is kind of the facts, um, the details of it. The other is a little bit more kind of language and image and, and we need and smells and sounds and those two things need to communicate. So, you know, some of the ideas that we have are the fact that you're getting the flashbacks and the intrusive images is your brain's attempt to try and work through the story. Um, and obviously because what we're thinking about is absolutely horrific, we push it away all the time. We're constantly avoiding the feeling. It's intense. Who wants to feel like that? Other people don't tolerate listening to the story because it's horrific. Who wants to hear the details um, of rape um, or, or abuse or a knife attack or a horrific car crash, somebody dying? Nobody wants to hear the fine details of that. But actually, we know that the brain needs to go through the fine details in order to piece all of the fractured information back together in a coherent way that it then becomes a narrative that can get put into the hippocampus. It can get stored as a cohesive memory. Um, so how do we talk to people about trauma? I think we allow people to talk in a way that feels comfortable for them. Um, and just validation and support and care and kindness. And I think what's important to understand is that PTSD, particularly, it, it doesn't go unless it's treated. It can't move out of the amygdala, which is where it's been stored in, in the threat system, without, it doesn't move with medication. It doesn't tend to move with just kind of a conversations particular conversations that need to be had in order for that to happen so encouraging people to engage in uh, local services or private therapy to, to have a trauma intervention um that, that's the stuff that helps okay so i i think you've uh, answered most of my question and, and thank thank you for that very um, I feel it was very well explained uh, so we'll i feel when we're talking about therapy in, the, in our last part of our show, we'll talk a little bit about how to listen to someone. Um, okay, so I feel like we're getting we're getting deeper, deeper and deeper and into more uh, heavier topics. Maybe it'd be nice to take a short break and I'll play you something nice and serene uh, to think your deep thoughts and we'll be back and we'll talk about things like complex trauma and PTSD.
welcome back to the Nirvana Principles show. Uh, today, we're talking about a difficult topic. We're talking about trauma. So this is just a heads up for you that uh, some of the things that we discussed may be difficult. And much like you listening, I myself am also learning about how to have a conversation uh, regarding trauma and try to understand it better. And if you have experiences or you do feel that myself or during our conversation we may make light of events or, or things like that doesn't necessarily mean how we feel about it our conversation is more trying to understand better and help you hopefully understand a bit better about what goes on in the body the mind and in our relationships uh, once we have adverse experiences one word which comes up often is complex trauma and one when you think about trauma one of the acronyms you might think about is PTSD. So I'm hoping, Josie, we can talk about those two and what your understanding is about them. Yes, absolutely. So there is a difference between trauma, complex trauma and complex PTSD. And the difference is that with PTSD, what we would need to see is reliving or re-experiencing. So that's where somebody um, is having kind of intrusive images of the experience. And the difference is that it feels as if the thing is happening again. So there will be some people that might have intrusive images about a memory, but have an understanding that it's not happening again. I know that I am here now and it's 10 years later and I'm in a different room. Um, feels difficult, but I, I know it's not happening again. With PTSD, there isn't that ability. The whole system has been activated um, and it's as if the incident is, is reoccurring. And that's what determines that it's actually PTSD. Um, so that's a slight differentiation. Yeah, I mean, for PTSD, one of, the, again, the, the same book that, that you mentioned earlier, uh, The Body Keeps Score, gave an example of a couple, uh, uh, a husband and, and, and a wife who had a horrific car accident, one of the worst ones in, in Canada. And they, um, apart from, thankfully, they, they were unheard, but they did see a lot of uh, death and destruction. And their response to it was, different one of the one of the people they kind of relived what you were talking about kind of just got mm -hmm. flashbacks back to the incident the car turning over and um they actually did the brain scan and they saw that there's no like for example if you have a sensory experience if i touch something or if i smell something it comes into the brain through the thalamus and and it kind of tells it's kind of, that sense is sense is made sense of if that's not too many yes. senses, yeah. Um, but that person was just sitting in an MRI or lying in an MRI machine. And when they were thinking about what happened, the areas of the brain lit up, which would be as if that event was happening again, but the thalamus, the place where the sensory inputs comes in was silent. There, there was no color there. So, so basically, as far as the brain is concerned, even on a neurobiological level, that was real and was happening mm -hmm. again. And then the other part of the brain that isn't working is, um, I can't remember the term, but it's the part that's responsible for speech. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, I'm not even able to communicate, like you're saying, make sense of or put to language, give words to the experience. Um, and again, that's about the, the right and the left 
not communicating together but but also makes me think I have a, a teenage son who has a VR headset um, and one of the games on that is you have to walk the plank yeah. so I okay, know I'm course. in my living room yeah. and you're at the top of a New York story skyscraper and you have to walk the plank and every part of my brain and body feels like I'm actually walking the plank similar to a flashback you don't you know it's um it feels like it's it's real if you imagine it it's as good as it happening as far as the brain and body are concerned yeah. um, they're actually using vr for exposure therapy now these days for things like agoraphobia or certain certain types of things that okay you can take the vr set off but it's a nice way i don't know if nice is the correct word but it's a way to expose someone um to that again develop some neural pathways and yeah approach some avoidance mm -hmm. absolutely yeah tell me about you mentioned ptsd tell me about um complex trauma so complex trauma is where there has been more than one incident complex is that there's kind of numerous incidents of that um and there can be themes so we can identify that um the theme of violence or a theme of neglect um uh, different themes of abuse and we can see that happening kind of throughout a person's life um it might be within different times of their life with a particular person over multiple incidents um within numerous relationships kind of started in childhood and then seem to keep finding partners that um you know elicit the the same things within those relationships um and that's what makes it complex but it doesn't mean we can't treat it okay. yeah you, you mentioned relationships i i think a common one of one which i i guess i kind of as an adult resonated with is that you kind of feel more comfortable in dysfunctional relationships sometimes because of the trauma you had because it's familiar mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's called the uh, the compulsion to repeat. So, you know, one of my supervisors said, you know, we copy and paste. You know, that's what's happened. And so that's what I do. That's what I'm used to. Um, we see that in, in many different ways that that might transpire, uh, even, you know, in terms of maybe... As a child, you might have been hit and maybe thought, gosh, I would never hit my own child. And then, unfortunately, when you become a parent yourself, you realize that you're kind of doing that same behavior. Um, and similarly, within that trauma, we we may seek out similar relationships uh, to mirror the, the experiences we had in our formative years. Um, it's just what we know. It's what we feel um, somewhat familiar with um, and we gravitate to what is familiar. Is that what we call generational trauma? I've I've heard like that term thrown around uh, a bit. Is is that what it is? We just described yeah. that the compulsion to repeat is there across uh, generations. We can definitely see that for sure. Um, I kind of will think with patients about the lines of trauma that run through generations and generations. It didn't start with you. Um, you know, even if there has been an incident where something has happened to you outside of the family. But we then think about, gosh, how was the family able to respond and support you? Wasn't great. Okay, let's think about that. Um, you know, because we're also thinking about what resources exist within a family. And people that have experienced complex trauma, there is a paucity of resources within the family to draw upon to navigate these challenges, which unfortunately makes the challenge even more difficult because you haven't got the tribe that you need to help you with that. So I mentioned that there were two people 
in in the example I gave in the example of the car accident when they scanned the wife and she was thinking about or she was asked to think about that car accident again her brain scan was like empty it was like super like it shows up as as white there's no there's no color there um and it turns out that basically her brain had was shutting down and it was what we call dissociating can can you tell me about your experiences uh, with that Josie so dissociation is um it's a survival strategy it, it protects us so when we physically can't leave a situation the brain will kind of escape as a way of protecting us you know this is too awful too horrific to be present for um, and absorb and so we kind of shut off and dissociation is something that every single one of us do if you think about it on a bit of a continuum you know a kind of a daydream is dissociating um being on a journey and arriving somewhere and, and realizing because i haven't really taken much notice of how i got here that's dissociation so we all do it to a greater or lesser extent but what we see with people who have had significant trauma in their lives is there may be significant dissociation so um any kind of trigger which stimulates a quite a strong feeling, um, the person may have learned to dissociate. Um, so you may notice that it can be difficult to engage them or you may notice that they don't seem to be very present. And again, that's their brain is trying to look after them by um, protecting them from feeling very difficult feelings. So it's it makes sense. It's it's functional. Um, but what we hope to do through treatment is develop the person's capacity to tolerate feelings for longer um, and to move what we'd call a switch point. So from the person's ability to tolerate to not tolerating, that we would try to, to lengthen that. Um, and again, with, with treating the, the trauma. Um, I'm just wondering whether you, you uh, do you want to catch anything else in this uh, phase of trauma or should do you want to maybe head on to our um, talk about healing these wounds? Yeah, let's have a think about healing. All right. So we'll be back right after this.
someone is coming to you specifically for trauma treatment we'll just use that as an as an example how do you create a safe space what is the conversation initially uh, have with them that hello my name is Hassan hi Josie I, I you know I, I want I need some help how does this work so I'm always interested in the historical experience of therapy that's I think there's a lot of information that is held there. Somebody's capacity to engage in therapy, how they experience that intervention, were they able to complete it? Were there any lasting effects of that intervention? Is there a pattern of things not working, uh, not getting on with a therapist or not finding it useful or finding it making things worse? Because that's all information for us, you know, as to is therapy indicated? And is it is now the right time? I guess there's a sense that, gosh, if somebody's coming for therapy, then yes, let's do it now. That, that's, that's not always the case. Um, it might be that actually what we think the most useful thing for you would be right now is to really develop the scaffolding around you to increase your day-to-day -day functioning. Because trauma work is very hard. I am going to ask you to think about and feel more importantly, the stuff that you have been fighting not to feel. Um, and we have to move you through some very painful and distressing memories in order for things to get better. So if life is already incredibly difficult, I, I don't want to add to that. I want to make sure that things are as good as they could be 
before making things worse for you. Um, so initially, that might be what we would call social prescribing. So just thinking about kind of local services that you might be able to engage in, uh, increasing day to day activity, uh, developing relationship with, with somebody, a friend, a partner, a parent, um, just so that you've got a bit more scaffolding, that you're a mm. little bit more held. Um, for some people, that's not possible. And, and we can also do that within um, the treatment, which is a phase of stabilization and it's about developing people's capacity to regulate themselves when mm -hmm. things get very very intense um so we might particularly in emdr we might develop a safe place and that's just some a place that you can imagine where you feel safe or calm safe might feel a trigger word so just that it's somewhere that the body feels somewhat regulated. The mind is quieter, it's peaceful, it's pleasant, um, and people can be as creative as they want with that. It, it might be an actual memory of somewhere they've actually been. Oh, I loved it there and I felt great, brilliant, let's go there. Or it could be, I'm not sure that I've ever felt safe or calm or peaceful anywhere. Can you imagine what that place would be like? You know, you can invent anything, imagine anything. Um, and then, and it's interesting. And do you want people to be there with you? Would you like to be alone? Mm. What can you hear? You want to make it as visceral as possible. Um, what can you smell? Um, what images are in your mind as you're here? What, and the key thing is, what does it feel like in the body? Because we're interested in the body having a different experience because it's in fact, the body and the emotion that we're treating, it's less the images, it's what those images do to the body. So we want you to feel differently when you're in that place. And then, and, and that might be as much as we do, grounding techniques, uh, external focus of attention. So people have become preoccupied with paying attention to the thoughts in their minds and the sensations in their body and just training people in, in a kind of mindfulness approach to notice what else exists in their world what they can hear and see and, and, and feel and smell um so and that can last for for weeks months for some people and for some people that is as much as we might do hmm. because moving into the trauma memory may not be indicated and if we decide to move into the trauma memory uh, then we can be thinking about emdr uh, you mentioned emdr before what does it stand for uh so it stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing um, and it's a treatment that was developed by a lady called Francine, Francine Shapiro and actually she was a psychologist in America and she had noticed that she was having a difficulty with, with something that happened in her life and she reports that she was walking through the park and her eyes were kind of moving between objects in the park and she noticed gosh, that, that seemed to kind of make her feel a little bit better. And that was the beginnings of her developing this treatment. Uh, what, what she has said, and she, she died, unfortunately, I think last year, um, she has said, if I had my time again, I would not call it uh, EMDR. She'd just call it reprocessing. <laughs> yeah. um, because we don't just use eye movement now. It's, it's what we call bilateral stimulation. So as long as we're activating the left and the right hemisphere of the brain, which yeah. initially we did through eye movement, mm. um, but we can also now do through, so they can do what's called a butterfly hug, mm. where the patient just taps themselves, or I might tap their legs, or we use a, a bar, or sometimes people can use headphones, and they'll have a sound 
activates in each side. So there's many different ways we can do it. So the idea is to kind of join the right and left brain together and the memories which you mentioned were fragmented and kind of like creating new connections between them. So it's um, it's definitely one of my favorite interventions. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an incredible thing to observe as somebody uh, who is able to tolerate EMDR does it. You activate the trauma memory. So the thing about EMDR is they don't have to give you too much detail about the trauma memory. I just need to know what the worst moment was and what you believed about yourself in that moment and how you felt. And you activate that trauma memory. So you need the patient to be able to feel it. You say, okay, can you, can you feel that? Yes. Okay, go with that. And then you just allow the brain to go wherever it wants. So they say it's like, kind of free association on, on kind of crack it's <laughs> 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 oh man I love free association I used to do it I used to do it with my friends a lot but then things started getting weird and they're they're like uh and then started getting awkward <laughs> I was like okay man you you are filthy Hassan I'm like I'm sorry it's, it's not me it's it's, it's my head safe space no judgment yeah yeah um okay so that that sounds cool that that's kind of like using the conscious brain conscious movement or conscious brain to get into uh, i wouldn't call it subconscious is that an appropriate way to think about it so it's it, it is and i guess and it's just it's allowing the brain to do what it wants to do anyway so some of the ideas you know that as, as the brain is going into a flashback it's about trying to connect with what it with the memory and and piece things together and so actually what we're doing by activating the left and the right, so by the bilateral stimulation, we're also um, attempting to keep the patient in the room with us as well and not going into dissociation fully into the trauma memory because mm. we don't want that. Yeah. So it's about keeping them in an optimal window of tolerance, not completely activated, but enough to feel it and allow the brain to make the links and move into adaptive information processing that it hadn't been able to before. And, and it's a wonderful thing. And you can kind of notice people going all over the place, but it all makes sense. And at the end, so you do kind of sets of about 20 to 30, and then you're just checking in every now. Okay, what, what, where are you now? What can you see? Okay, go with that. Um, and then at the end, I'm saying, gosh, I realized that that was linked to that. And or I'd forgotten that part. Gosh, I, I didn't remember that. And in the processing, mm. it comes and and you're just filling in the pieces yeah. and, and developing a clearer narrative yeah. and, and hopefully helping to move away from the I am weak, which, of course, they are not mm -hmm. to. Yeah, I'm safe. I'm, I'm strong. I'm brave. So I myself am kind of like, I'm very optimistic and hold EMDR with high regard um, simply because, like I said, it kind of blurs the the brain versus the mind kind of debate. Mm -hmm. um, so, but w what about when you consciously or cognitively decide, a, I think trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, T TFCBT is, is how the cool kids call it. Uh, mm -hmm. What's different in that? So trauma-focused CBT is generally something that you would use to treat a single incident. So uh, a car crash, um, an attack, um, where there's less kind of complexity. And with trauma-focused, what you're doing is uh, somebody is talking through in great detail the incident. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly saying, okay, what can you see? What can you hear? What can you smell? I 
want to be able to kind of you know if, we, if you're doing a good what we call reliving I should be able to have a full visual understanding of exactly what's happening because and you're wanting all of that information somebody to talk through the incident then you record the incident as you, you record them talking through the reliving and the patient is asked to listen to it every night until the next session and it's about just getting this narrative in their mind that it ends you're okay you survived or whatever it is that the person needs to to kind of update um you identify kind of hot spots within the the memories so or points of intense emotion uh, and you can target them as well again supporting the patient to develop adaptive information how else could you have thought about it in that moment what do you know now that you didn't know then um, again, as a way to kind of update the memory and move it into the hippocampus. Mm. So to kind of like undo the triggers? In a way. Yes, yeah. So we could trigger desensitization. So um, uh, wrestling between, you know, the, the kind of the past and the present. What what do you, what's happening now that reminds you that this is not happening again? Ah, okay, well, I'm wearing a different top or mm -hmm. I'm driving a different car or it's it's this day or I can see this, just kind of present moment stuff. And, and, and a key part of both of the interventions is reclaiming life, which is, you know, the, the kind of the, key, the three key things that you're going to see is avoidance. So reclaiming life is about addressing that avoidance doing the things again, you know, that engaged you in life and helped you to feel a bit better. Hypervigilance, so constantly in your threat system. And hopefully the treatment is about bringing down that sense that um, hypersensitivity. Um, and then also the reliving, and that's what we do, uh, the re-experiencing, and we do the reliving to target that. We're nearing the end of our time together, Josie. So I, I just for the listener, uh, just wanted to give you a heads up that whatever we talked about today is general advice and it shouldn't replace what your doctor or GP or psychiatrist can help you with. So if you feel you do need help, uh, please contact those services. Um, also, today's topic uh, was a bit difficult and there's a lot more we could talk about. So we've given you kind of like a whistle-stop tour uh, there are other resources. Josie, do you have any any books or resources if people want to find out more? Uh, so The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, uh, K-O-L-K, is a really good book kind of explaining a lot about trauma. So I, I think that's that's one worth having a look at if, if you're wanting to know a bit more about uh, trauma specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the EMDR Toolbox by Jim Knipe, which is K-N-I-P-E. Uh, if you're interested in EMDR and wanting to know more about that, I think that's a good book to read. Um, if you're interested in knowing a bit more about kind of complex emotional needs, uh, quite an easily accessible and readable um, booklet that's been developed is um, Meeting the Challenge, Making the Difference. Um, so you can access that if you just Google that. I think you should be able to access that. All right, all hail Google. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so Josie, uh, thank you so much for your time today, and um, thank you for explaining explaining these uh, concepts so so kindly. And I feel I learned a lot today. I, I hope it was uh, it was enjoyable for you too. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, I hope it has been useful for other people. And. This is December, so 
Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And we'll meet again next year.